Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? I am really excited to introduce Bob Shriver, the legendary high school coach who spent 36 years as the head coach at Boys Latin, where he was 506 and 138, six MIAA championships in a total of 15 title games and three perfect seasons that resulted in number one rankings in national championships. Bobby is now retired, but is still active in the lacrosse world and uh, with his son who coaches at Georgetown and he runs one of the best high school tournaments with uh, McDonough head coach Andy Hillgartner and uh, Shrives I am so pumped up to talk lacrosse with you welcome to the Philacrosophy podcast. Well thanks for having me I'm, I'm looking forward to it. The Philacrosophy podcast is made possible in part by the JM3 video assessment tool. There's no question that video is critical to player development. One way or another, your son or daughter must utilize video to learn their game and the game. To learn more, see video testimonials, or register, go to www.jm3sports.com forward slash video right now. I remember when I first was coaching, I was the assistant at Yale, and um, I was taking my very first recruiting trip down to Baltimore to watch the uh, playoffs and coach Waldvogel was like, you need to go visit Bob Shriver, stop by the John Brown store. And uh, he'll give you the, he'll give you the skinny on all the players. And uh, I remember that. I remember that meeting, uh, not so much like it was yesterday, but I remember very clearly coming down and visiting you there Shrives. And um, that was when I first got a chance to meet you and you've always been uh, great to me over the course of the years. It's funny back uh, in, uh, I started running the John Brown store in like 1985 and I was very lucky. I had been teaching prior to that, but I was very lucky that boys Latin kept me on as the lacrosse coach. And then I ventured into this, uh, into the so-called real world for a couple of years. But, but John Brown's was, a uh, you know, it, it, I don't know whether you call it cheers or Mayberry or whatever. It was this, nice country, you know, and people used to just, roll in there and just want to talk lacrosse 24-7. So it was actually, you know, it, it was a lot of fun, believe it or not. Oh, I believe it. I mean, that place was incredible. It was like cheers for lacrosse. And I remember stopping in and seeing you seven years later, um, 1998, my last year at Yale. And uh, I remember uh, this guy, uh, Peter Hillgartner, who had just sort of finished up his career at Maryland, brother of Andy Hillgartner, who at the time was already a, a buddy of mine. And I'd never met Pete, but I'd watched him, you know, in Final Fours where uh, Maryland was so close to winning championships. And Peter Hillgartner um, just stepped up big time. And he made me a really good breakfast sandwich that day. And then uh, a few months later, I got the job at Denver and he became my assistant coach. And it was all because of uh, the John Brown store. Wow. Well, you know, it's funny. All the Hillgartners, all the brothers, right? who I coached in high school with Boys Latin, and then uh, Peter and Andy, 
you know, they all spent a stint working at John Brown's store. Um, so that was always entertaining because you were guaranteed if any of the boys were around, Spook would show up. Oh, yeah. Spook Hillgardner is an all-time beauty. And it's funny because I met Spook before I met any of these guys. Back when, remember when I made those videos back in the early 90s, mid-90s, the USA Lacrosse Progression? Did you ever see those videos? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Well, Spook, sure. when I first made those, Spook reached out, and he was really heavily involved with U.S. lacrosse at the time. And um, it's just so funny how, you know, now, you know, Rife lives in Colorado. Uh, his daughter plays lacrosse, and he reaches out to me. You know, Andy and I worked a ton of camps together. Um, and over the course of the years, uh, we became great friends. And then, of course, Peter was my assistant in my first three years at Denver. And, uh, you know, we were – we were basically attached to the hip for three years and uh, really the, just an incredible family. And you can't forget good old aunts and Hillgartner holding down the fort. Yeah. Well, dealing with spook and three boys uh, can't have been easy. And she's always been the, she's been the, the straw that stirs the drink. I think quite honestly, she's a great lady. No doubt. I was, uh, I was asking uh, Annie Hillgartner today, you know, Hey, what should I, what should I ask uh, Shrives about in preparation for this podcast? And, and he was like, hey, you got to ask him, because he came to a few Floyd Thackers, Lloyd Thackers. Um, and uh, for those of you out there who don't know what the Lloyd Thacker is, it's a, it's a three-by tournament. And um, I am, uh, Shrives, I am really um, uh, into this free play model of player development, which really is how we all grew up playing sports back in the day. And um, Andy, Peter – Rife, those guys in the Kelly boys started playing this three-on-three game with tennis balls and a three-by-three net that they dubbed three-by. Um, they brought it out through uh, one of Andy's teammates in Michigan State. Um, three-by, to this day, is played at Wash Park in Denver every single Thursday night. I went out there um, a, week ago a week ago last night. I went out and played. There were four games going on, four on tennis courts, under the lights in Wash Park. Um, and uh, – the, uh, they started their own version of the Lloyd Thacker out here called the Hal Tremper. But do you remember those uh, early Thacker days? Oh, my gosh. Classics. I had, I had only heard about it, you know, sort of because people were playing in it. Um, uh, and between I, – I think Andy and Kevin Anderson were really the yeah. uh, prime movers getting the Lloyd Thacker started. The yeah. name Lloyd Thacker's classic. I think he was Andy's and Peters and Rice elementary school principal or something. Yeah. It was just a great – so the tournament became the Lloyd Thacker. And Andy and I, like you were talking to him this morning, I was talking to him yesterday, you know, that we were going to do this and how much you love the, you know, the, the three-by games, you know, in confined space on a tennis court and how valuable you think they, they have become as a teaching tool for the game of lacrosse. And, you know, I keep coming back to, you know, lacrosse in the confined spaces, you know, that's what the Brazilians have been doing in confined spaces with futsal. It, it, isn't that uh, accurate sort of analogy or not? Oh, yeah, a thousand percent. And it's just, uh, it's just really amazing to sort of to track it back there. I remember playing a lot of three-by um, with Hilgi, with Peter, with Skeets, um, you know, when he was my assistant with our players. And anyways, it's all great memories. Um, I want to bring up another memory. I remember going to watch the 1997 BL team win a championship um, in, in, in really maybe the best lacrosse team I had ever seen. And maybe to this day, 
Um, I want to I want to touch on some of your memories, you know, of, of various players and teams and things like that. But let's. I'm sure you had a lot of great teams, and you uh, love to hear about them. But talk to us a little bit about that '97 team and um, just how special that team was. Well, you know, again, you know, proudly or, or, or however you would say it, when any, whenever anybody talks about, you know, some great high school teams, uh, you know, 97 is always in the conversation, which is, you know, really pretty amazing when you think about it. What, what happened back then is w- through a variety of, you know, of different avenues into boys Latin, we ended up with the best lacrosse players that that year, the the year that these kids were in like middle school, the three best uh, local rec teams was, were a team in, uh, excuse me, in Ellicott city, basically. uh, And then two teams in the Baltimore North County. And for whatever reason, we ended up getting um, the best players essentially from all three of those teams from the Ellicott city team. It's awful. The, the names, I'll, I'll figure the name of the, yeah. the rec program were the Glatzel brothers. The um, and they started their, they started their high school career uh, at Mount St. Joe. They're just as freshmen. They weren't, they didn't like it. They wanted a change of venue. And, and back then the rules were a little bit, you know, easier to transfer. They're not so easy now, which is fine. But anyhow, so they transferred in. Uh, we had a kid uh, who was playing at Cockeysville uh, by the name of Greg Patchek. He transferred in after his ninth grade year. And we had already had the Ryan Mollett and Aaron Vercoloni and Brian and Tommy Knee and Ian Shore. They were already at school. The Ulrich brothers showed up as freshmen. Anyhow, all yeah. of a sudden, kind of out of nowhere we ended up oh and the Rattleball brothers excuse me Patrick and JD but we ended up with these this group of kids that were, were really amongst the best players in the entire area at the time on the same team and you know the rest I guess as they say was uh is history but when 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 they finally we'd have probably won in the when they were juniors, when they were freshmen, excuse me, they played JV and they were undefeated and won the championship. Then, you know, a lot of them made varsity as sophomores. When we were juniors, uh, we had a very thin defensive line that was really good, but one of our starting defensemen tore his ACL. And so we were really thin on defense. And that's essentially, I think, why we didn't win when they were juniors. But then when they became seniors and everybody was healthy, uh, it was ridiculous. It, it, was, it was just ridiculous. So the, Ulrich, the Ulrich brothers and, and one of the Glatzel brothers uh, were really the, the spark plug behind Notre Dame making their first Final Four in 2001 when those guys were seniors. And what, me and the other Glatzel brother were up at Syracuse, and they won, what, one, one, one championship? Well, no, they won, they won two. John and Tommy ended up graduating in different years for various or sundry things. But, okay, yeah. yeah, they won – John Glatzel won two titles. I don't know whether Tommy was on both of those teams. Um, Mollett, you know, uh, Mollett must have won uh, two championships um, as a defenseman for Princeton. Princeton during the end of their run. Yeah, he was. Yeah, and he was the uh, his senior year. He was the Ivy League Player of the Year, right. the Defenseman of the Year, awesome. and you know he was a first team All American. And the next year, because Glatzel, you know, he, he had to miss a year. Uh, Glatzel was the defenseman of the year. Oh, that's uh, right. Yeah. You know. That's unbelievable. And, your, your high school team had 
the defenseman, two defensemen of the years on it. Plus, you know, every other guy was an all American. I mean, the sure kid, his brother, Ian, I coached at at Yale, if you recall. Um, Yeah. Ian's brother, Brian. Yeah. Brian sure. That's right. Yes. I meant Brian sure. I coached at Yale. Ian was like, I used to like refer to him as metal lark lemon of lacrosse. I mean, I just could not believe how skilled that kid was. Pacek, he went to Duke or something, right? That's right. He went to Duke. Um, we had a couple kids go to Denver too. Brian Berger, uh, who was our starting goalie, he went to Denver. Oh, that's right. Colby um, Cox. Those guys were. One of our, yeah, those those guys. I coached those two guys, but but I didn't. I forgot to put two and two together on that one because I didn't recruit them. You know, I got there. I got there for their junior year. But anyways, um, right. what, what are some of the? Um, just just share with us you know, some of the um, other teams that kind of come to mind when you think about the, the very great teams, the, the greatest of the, I mean, you had a lot of great teams in 36 years, but, you know, what are some of the other ones that would be sort of be on par maybe with that 97 team or close to it? Well, one of the things in our league, uh, you know, that goes back, I call it the modern era. Um, if you go back, the modern era, I say, started when everybody was using plastic sticks. You know, you could do that in, you could say that's 1972 or 73. And yeah. I kind of refer to that as the modern era. And in our league, in that time, there's only been six undefeated teams over, it's almost 50 years, really, wow. over that stretch that have won every non-league game and every league game and therefore have been undefeated. And that's pretty crazy if you think about it which speaks to the uh balance of power in our league you know uh, or not, not necessarily the balance of power just the balance in our league yeah so the last three of those teams have been bl teams which you know is is pretty remarkable so all three of those 97 06 uh which is a special team to me because my son david who is now coaching your son colin but anyhow yeah. david was on the team BL's present coach, Brian Farrell, was on that team, um, that team. And then in 2014, we did it again. Um, and there was a lot of great players on that team. Um, but 2013 might have been one of the best teams we ever had. And we were undefeated the whole year. And we lost. Uh, we, we got upset in the championship game, a, a game we were winning six to nothing at one point in time. Oh, and Loyola came back and beat us. 10 to 9. It was a, a heartbreaking, heartbreaking event. But that was a great team. Um, Coach Ubriaco, Gene, you might remember, yep. um, who, who is now, he, he was a Boys Latin assistant. He's a BL grad. He was on our 1998 team, 88 team, excuse me, which a lot of those guys you played against in the Lloyd Thacker. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ubriaco and yeah. Derek Radaball and, uh, Sandy Cook, they they were all Lloyd Thacker regulars. But anyhow, Coach U was on the 88 team, uh, and we we had upset maybe one of the best teams of all time in our league, which was Loyola at the time. They, they had been undefeated, and we upset them in a championship game. And our best player then was John Webster, who was, a, you know, a tremendous player at North Carolina, yep. uh, who was part of their last championship team prior to when they won, you know, a couple years ago. Yeah, Webb, so, he's, he's, uh, he's coaching uh, girls across now. Yeah, he coaches girls across. He's got a daughter that's playing lacrosse up at Yale. Yeah. Uh, I think she, she's starting her sophomore year. Webby's uh, one of the great players and, and uh, a better person. Yeah, he's, he's a great guy. Um, it's fun to uh, think about all these 
um, you know, great moments. I, I remember being at a game. I don't remember which year it was now, but I just remember looking at your sideline. You got, you had like nine coaches, you know, like, and, and it was like, who's who of coaching, you know I mean? Like it, it was just unbelievable, you know, um, just the resources that you had and just like the, the posse of awesome people. Um, you know, just uh, talk to us about, about a little bit of your uh, coaching tree of some of the people that were, that were on the sidelines with you over the course of time. Well, before I even talk about the tree, I should probably just, if it's okay to bore you a little bit, is how fortunate I was when I first started as the head coach. I worked for Ridge Warfield as an assistant at BL for four years. Uh, uh, and so my total time working there has been 40 years. But when I first got the job in like 1980 or it was 81, uh, the oldest Chickaroni boy, Henry Ciccaroni's oldest son, John, was on our team. And I got this phone call one day, and it was from Henry Ciccaroni. He goes, hey, coach, why don't we go sit down and have breakfast one day? <laughs> so anyhow, we, we went to this, uh, this, this place in Cross Keys called the Village Roost, where it was uh, a, a place where a lot of guys would show up in the morning. Ciccaroni would eat, eat breakfast with Joe Cowan and Denny Townsend and all these guys. So anyhow. I sat down with Coach Ciccaroni, you know, I guess I, we were there for an hour or two. And by the time I had left, I knew more about lacrosse than I had ever learned in my prior 30 years of existence. You know, he just, he gave me, he gave me the playbook. And I've been very lucky to have guys like Coach Tierney. And I'm sure I asked you a million questions along the way, or Coach Cottle's been great to me, uh, you know, that have really helped me along the way. And, you know, because of that, um, you know, I was able to uh, learn a, a lot about the game that I really didn't honestly know. And I don't know whether I would say I passed that on to some of these guys, but one of the nice things about coaching lacrosse, especially high school lacrosse in Baltimore, is the amount of people that are in the area that love the game, you know, that, that would love to come out and coach kids because they love the game and they want to impart, you know, their wisdom on the game. Um, one of the great guys that I had the opportunity to coach with is about 1992 uh, or 93, you know, uh, somewhere in there. We were practicing on our upper field, and we have a parking lot right there. And uh, this guy was standing up top on the parking lot watching us practice. And I'm like, uh, who is this guy? So anyhow, I walked over to the, to the parking lot, and I said, can I help you? And he goes, no, I'm just sitting there watching. And long and short, it was Quint Kesnick. And so <laughs> – I said, what are you doing? He goes, I'm just doing nothing. I said, well, why don't you come down and coach? And we coached together for almost 20 years. Wow. And he is, he is, um, he's just one of a zillion guys that I had the opportunity to coach with, but he's got as good an eye for the game of lacrosse as anybody. Uh, his vision and what he saw during a game, he ran our box for a while, and he knew some team was going offside 15 seconds before they went offside. Um, but, you know, and, and then the way he coached goaltenders, uh, you know, he, he did stuff with goalies that, you know, I, I've never seen. He was terrific. Um, let me think, uh, who else? Uh, you know, Gene Ubriaco, I mentioned. I coached for 30 years with Steve Dubin, who was a, uh, he was a Hopkins grad, and he was a defender, and he played defense at Hopkins under the tutelage of the great Freddie Smith. I don't know if you yeah, remember that name. I do. You know. 
you know, Henry Ciccaroni was a really, really, really tough SOB on everybody. And Freddie Smith was, you know, he was, he was, he was the good gentle soul. You know, he was the good cop, but he was a brilliant defensive coach. And, you know, Steve played for him. And then, you know, he bought a lot of Freddie's stuff to, to, you know, the 30 years that we coached together at BL. So, uh, you know, just really lucky. Coached yeah. a bunch of great guys who are now coaching. Uh, I had the fortune to coach Charlie Toomey for two years when he was at BL. Um, uh-huh. And he, he, he's just done an incredible job uh, at Loyola, obviously. Yeah. Stan Ross was the BL kid that's, um, you know, was a Division One coach at Butler for one year before they canceled the program. Yeah. Um, and he's now – He's now started a new program in Florida that you're probably familiar with. So, I don't know, boy. It's there. There's been a lot of a lot of really good guys. No doubt. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Coaches Training Program. If you are a coach interested in sharpening your saw, like so many of the guests on the show, you are going to love the content in this program. Go to www.jm3coaches.com for more information. I have a question for you. I ask a lot of coaches this question, and I'm going to ask you also. Um, you know, you don't win as much as you won and do it for as long as you did it without having a really strong um, culture. And how would you describe both your, the culture in, at, at BL uh, of your program as well as kind of how you, you know, in, would intentionally make it happen to, in, in your vision? That's, uh, I, you know, I think that's a great question. You know, um, one of the things that when I took over, when I, when I got the head job, I had worked for Ridge Warfield. And one of the things he was, he was, a, he was an incredible motivator. Um, he just knew how to motivate kids. Um, and he kind of, I don't want to say he passed that on to me because uh, nobody could motivate kids the way he did, but he made the game uh, uh, maybe more important than it really was, but in a really, really good way. And and I think that we were able to kind of sustain that for, you know, for a number of years, um, you know, that, that the game was important. And if you're going to play it, you know, let's take it seriously. And, you know, we were always very lucky that you had previous teams that had established a level of consistency and a, le- and a level of, you know, uh, competitiveness that, you know, you could keep building on year after year after year that if you wanted to come and, you know, try to play lacrosse at BL, then, you know, you have to be prepared to, you know, honor those guys that came before you and really try to set the example for the younger kids in the program that, you know, this was going to be something that you have to work really hard for. So, you know, you put all that into the shaker and you end up, you know, having a, a program, again, uh, you, you know, uh, I guess proudly, I don't know whether that's a fair term or not, but the, the level of consistency has been really remarkable. And Brian Farrell's just, he's done the exact same thing. You know, his yeah. level of consistency, he's only been doing it for four years, but they've been really, really successful. Um, you know, the only problem in the last three years is Calvert Hall's just been, you know, r- really good. So um, we've been very close to being, you know, winning a couple titles in the last four years. So, you know, a lot of that is, the legacy um 
you know, that that's been built up over years and years. So anyhow, I, I, I think yeah. that helps a little bit. Definitely. You know, when you think about the legacy and you think about years and years and years and how much you've seen, how, how much has the game changed from when you took over sometime in the early eighties to the time you left or now versus how much has it really kind of stayed the same and, and touch on, would the best players of yesteryear be able to be the best players of the current day? Uh, you know, another great question. I think probably the biggest thing that's changed in the game is the level of athlete that's playing in the game. Uh, you know, uh, even in Baltimore, which is lacrosse rich, you know, and kids have been playing for a long time, more and more kids are playing and better and better athletes. So, Kids are bigger, faster, stronger, but I think that's the same across all sports, you know, uh, in, in, in 2019 versus, you know, 1980. Um, yeah. So that's one thing. But uh, one of the biggest changes in the game has simply been the rules. Um, you know, yeah. if you go back to high school across when we first started, you know, you played 12-minute quarters on a varsity level. Uh, we might have started at 10 believe it or not, but, you know, the whistle blew every time the ball went out of bounds. So you could substitute every single time the whistle blew. And as a result, you could really control a game. Yeah. Uh, you know, you could control, you could get your defensive personnel on, you know, you could put your best offensive guys on, you know, and, and the game didn't have the same flow, you know, it has now as, you know, as it's been evolving over the last 35 years. And as a result, if I go back to our first, you know, 10 or 15 years, I would say that if a team got ahead in a game, that it was, you know, if you were up by three or four goals in, in the second half, chances are very good you're not losing the game because you could control the game. But, you know, as the game has evolved, it's harder and harder to have complete and utter control over the game. First, got to play more kids because, you know, the, the whistle's not blowing as much. So you have to play more kids. And then two, when, when you play more kids and the pace of the game is fast, then typically, you know, uh, the best team's going to win. Uh, yeah. I think the best team's going to win. And a team that's behind four goals, you know, as late as, you know, middle of the fourth quarter, uh, they got a great chance to come back and win the game if they've got enough, you know, enough talent and they can win a few face-offs. So, you know, those two things I think have changed drastically. And the plastic stick, you know, I go all the way back to its inception. The plastic stick just really changed the game in such dramatic, dramatic, dramatic ways. And it's really, it's probably been one of the greatest influences on the game's ability to grow because, you know, you teach the sport. You've been teaching it at an incredibly high level, you know, for the last couple of years, you know, once you got out of the college coaching ranks, but, you know, you're teaching kids how to play the game. Well, you know, back in the sixties and seventies, a kid pick up one of those wooden sticks. It might take him four months to figure out, you know, how it was balanced in his hands. Well, now you can, you know, you go to the store, you can pick up a plastic stick and it's balanced in both hands. Um, and that enhances your ability to teach the game very quickly. Yeah, no doubt. And, and the stick technology is, you know, from, from its inception and 
until until even current day. It's pretty remarkable with the offset and all of these different things. And obviously the uh, you know the when you could substitute on every out of bounds because there was a horn on end lines. You know it was uh, it was it, you you could also go ahead and sub in um, sub in an, an extra six poles if you wanted to and ride with. <laughs> You could have nine yeah. out there. Um, I don't know if you ever yeah, did. Great. Did you ever do the nine pole ten man ride? No, we never did the nine poles. But you know, there was plenty of times you had six on. That's a great call too. You know, that's a that's one of the rules that changed that I I didn't even you know hadn't even thrown out there. I think the first six pole and then nine pole guy wasn't it Jack Emmer maybe or not? Yeah, I think it was uh, you know eighty two or eighty three nine poles. You know, uh, the platoon. You throw in a platoon of. Uh, of a ride of a riding team with nine poles and really make your, make your, uh, your day a nightmare. Now, by the time I got to Brown and we used to play army, I think there was um, six poles, but the nine poles had, you know, had been reduced to six or five. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. But you know, the reason why I asked you the question about, about players is when I think of the guys that are like my age. Okay. So I graduated college, you know, late eighties. Um, and I think of, you know, Petro, um, the Gates, Marichek, Zolberti, not all guys necessarily that, you know, played in Baltimore, but they were the players of that era. They continued to be the best players in the world into the 2000s. If they, for those of them who kept playing, Petro obviously, you know, went full-time into the coaching, but, but, um, but, you know, you kind of look at, I think there's no question that lacrosse is, is a lot better now on a lot of levels. Cause like you said, so many more athletes, there's so many more people playing. There's so much, more information out there, you know, in many ways, coaching is a lot better uh, in the sense of just everybody has put so much time studying all the details. Um, but I still haven't seen, you know, players any better than the guys that I just mentioned. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, well, one thing that stands out on the guys you mentioned is uh, uh, the influx of the, you know, the Gates and Marichek from Canada. You know, uh, maybe even Huntley was the first big-time Canadian. He and Mike French, you know, might have been the first big-time Canadians. But how about the influence of the you Canadians? Dave, and By the way, Dave. Dave Huntley. Yeah, Dave, Dave Huntley. But Dave. the influence of the Canadians on, on, on the, the field game has been just remarkable. The, the Native Americans, while they're not as, as numerous in numbers as the Canadians, but, you know, their influence on the game has been – really good so um that's you know that goes back to that thing we were talking about a little while ago about you know playing box across and playing lacrosse three by threes and confined spaces and smaller goals you know how much that's helped the game i mean that's just is there you know you follow it religiously is there a good college team that doesn't have a canadian or two playing you know offense not many right not many Notre Dame might be uh, one of your few schools that really hasn't had a lot of Canadians over the course of time um, that have been, you know, a top 10 team. Almost everybody else has, has somebody, you know, you know what I've been thinking about too, Shrives is pretty interesting is, um, you know, as, as you know, I'm into this, this free play movement big time. And I, I, I think back to my own uh, development as an athlete where so, lacrosse, I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island. I started playing lacrosse when I was 10, but lacrosse was just March, April, May. That was it. Um, and uh, I would have a stick in my hand every day and I'd be messing around with my buddies. But really what I did most of the time was play soccer and I didn't play club soccer. I didn't have, there wasn't a lot of organized sports. I kind of played all sports probably like you did. Um, 
And I think back to the lacrosse at the time, and I think back to even my college years, and I think about, you know, and I referenced this a second ago, how coaching is, has gotten better, uh, which I believe it has in many ways. Um, but it was interesting that back then, so I went to high school at Moses Brown, went to school at Brown, and I had a, a t high school teammate that was also a college teammate, this guy, Bernie Bonanno. And we had little plays that we did. <laughs> and we would, like, talk about them and go do them. And it, I remember my freshman year in college, we had this little play. It was kind of like, you know, I was playing mid. He was playing attack. I'd throw it down to him. He was a lefty. I'd go in like, you know, like I was going to go into the crease doing nothing, and then I would just cut back for the ball. Um, and, you know, I, I started coaching at Yale, and I started wondering, like, you know, as I got into Yale and Denver, I wondered why, you know, when I was playing, there, there wasn't that much structure. Sure, we had an out-of-bounds player, too, but it was pretty much just run a set. And now everything is just, like, incredibly structured. Um, and in a good way because the coaching has gotten so good. But I'm thinking about this correlation between the nature of the way we grew up playing sports and the nature of the way coaches coached it, which was way more hands-off because I think that players kind of did stuff on their own a little bit more often. And I just want to get your opinion on, on that. Well, lacrosse, you know, uh, how are most goals scored in lacrosse? They're scored in, you know, free-flowing situations. You know, a failed clear, somebody picks up a ball or a fast break off a face-off or, you yeah. know, some rebound off a shot, you know, uh, or extra man when you, you know, that's a little free-flowing when you got an extra guy. Um, so the game, again, back, back to your point, I think the game, the, the beauty of the game is still in those situations where, you know, you and your friend are just running a simple give and go. You know what each guy's doing, and, and it works. Um, but, you know, the game in and of itself, it's all about unsettled situations. And aren't they, you know, I mean, you, 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 you set up some structure for unsettled situations, but there's a lot of unsettled situations there's no structure for, you know. And, you know, and, and that part of the game – you know, hopefully will never go away. I think, you know, uh, with the consistent rule changes that, you know, they've been making over the last 10 or 15 years, they, they've tried to keep that part of the game as a major part of it. So, yeah. you know, I think, I think one of the, one of the subtle problems though, you talk about, you know, you used to play soccer is I think kids in all sports are specializing too young and they're not learning you know, some of the tricks you you use in soccer that I guarantee you you used in lacrosse. Maybe it's on a loose ball, you know, and you're you're in a pile chasing a loose ball and, you know, you had good feet because you could kick a soccer ball. Well, you know, you developed the skill to kick that ball into free space and to go get it. You know, you learn that in soccer or in basketball, you know, the, the pick game, which has become so prevalent in lacrosse, you learn that. Uh, maybe football, you learn a little discipline of, you know, if all 11 guys aren't doing the same thing on a football field, you know, it's just not going to work, you know. And, and so you, you bring that to the lacrosse field. So I really think one big issue is, is the fact that kids specialize too much, which is, I think, unfortunate. Yeah, I agree. And I guess, you know, I, I, think, about, I think about structure versus non-structure as, as, as a part of the argument as it relates to, uh, as it relates to specialization, meaning that, I think that playing multiple sports is important, but I think it's equally important 
to be able to play some unstructured multiple sports. I mean, when we grew up, we were just so excited to go to practice, right? I mean, you didn't have that many. It was like lacrosse season. You couldn't wait to go. 80% of the time you were playing your sport and it wasn't structured. And so like you'd go to practice and you were happy to do whatever the coach was telling you to do. It just didn't matter. And, and, um, and, and I feel like back then the coaches, you know, because they didn't have as much knowledge in part, but also because of the nature of it all, they just kind of got you organized and the players took some responsibility and they had a fluency within the game. And I think that the fluency that you gained from basketball or from soccer, from playing pickup really translated into, into the, into the, into the fluency that we, that you would have in, in lacrosse. And so my point is, I think sometimes thinking about multi-sport athletes is, is a great way to think about it, but how about thinking about multi-sport athletes where you're actually spending a legitimate amount of time gaining fluency in unstructured pickup, pickup style. Yeah, sure. Like playing three on three. Well, isn't that, isn't that the old idea about going to play pickup basketball or, you know, pick up lacrosse in the backyard and picking up a stick and, you know, throwing it against the wall or getting out there with your buddy and, you know, practicing your air gates or, you know, whatever the heck you are. Absolutely. Because all that stuff, it, there, there's one commonality, I think, in all that kind of stuff is it's the fun part of it, you know, and, and if you can have fun playing the game, and I don't care what game it is, if you can have fun playing the game, then when you get to the structured part of it, I think it, you know, you can, I don't know, you can rely back or you can relate back to those times when you're in the backyard screwing around or you're playing three on three on the tennis courts or, you know what I mean? And and you incorporate that stuff into what you're doing within a structured system and you're having success. Switching gears here, talk to me a little bit about your philosophy on um, your offense. What, what, what was your offensive philosophy, you know, and how did it evolve over the course of the years? Well, well, for us, more often than not, um, we've been very fortunate that if BL, you know, if you looked at the history of boys Latin lacrosse, one thing I would say that we've had a, a really good number of is good attackmen. And a lot of the way we attacked, the game was um, from behind the goal, which, you know, in, in modern, especially big boy lacrosse, you don't see as much because the defensemen are so good and the attackmen aren't so good at, you know, getting away from the defensemen. But at the high school level where if you all of a sudden have two or three good attackmen, very, very few teams have two or three really good defensemen that can neutralize them. So with the ball behind the goal, um, and it doesn't mean that you don't attack from above the goal, but with the ball behind the goal, kids, generally speaking, don't like playing defense with their back to the goal uh, or their back to the ball with, with no chance of visualizing where the ball is. So I think probably, you know, if you have looked at it semi in a nutshell, that we've been very good at attacking the game from behind the goal, um, which you know, you, you, you see enough of it. You know, your son's played a lot of box lacrosse where, you know, you're doing a lot of two-man stuff up in front of the goal. A lot of the college stuff is two-man stuff stuff in front of the goal. But look at some of the teams that have had success uh, at the collegiate level. I would say it's very unusual that teams that have had really good success at the collegiate level haven't had one or two really dominant players that can play behind the goal. Um, so you're, you, know, you could go. Philosophy is 
you know, to be able to attack from behind the goal with your attackman. And you're saying, hey, we, we were lucky and fortunate to have some great, great attackmen. But, but you could also argue that, you know, because that was part of your philosophy, that was part of, part of the way that they developed. I mean, you know, you could have easily just been like, get it to the shorties like I, 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 assume, I feel like everybody else is doing. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. Um, and but you know, and if that's not you know a hundred percent the way we we played offensively, but I guess you know if you if you broke it down in a nutshell, it's very nice to be able to look back there and you have the ball in Shaq Sandwich's hands or Colin Heacock's hands or John Webster's hands or you know um, some some just brilliant guys who knew how to play the game from behind the goal who had great vision and you know you can play off that um, and then you know. The old idea of, you know, you score goals in lacrosse, you know, you got to learn how to ride well, you know, and try to get that ball on the ground to get a couple free ones. It's, uh, you know, it, it, pushing the ball uh, as much as you can uh, w- when you get it back, let's say, from the defensive end to the offensive end, you know, trying to create, you know, uh, unsettled. Attacking the goal when you're having a, a, a good – what what if you're four on four or you're five on five, they're great times to attack the goal because, you know, people haven't set up their defenses and the slides aren't great. So, you know, it's more than just putting the ball behind the goal. Um, but I think that, you know, if, if we looked at it sort of historically, that's been one thing we've been pretty good at. You've had some of the best attack men ever, you know, high school level, college level, pro level, come through your program. How much of an emphasis did you put on player development and what would you say your philosophy is as it relates to that? Um, I, I, that that's kind of hard. Um, I think in, in many respects, you know, you, you hope that they've developed a, a reasonable amount of just skill, not necessarily, you know, the ability to understand the game and to play the game, but the skill part of the game, you know, you still got to catch and throw any way you look at it if you're going to be successful, unless you got just, you know, 10 ridiculous athletes that they can thrive at any time. You know, just put the ball on the ground and we'll beat the hell out of you and we'll pick it up and somehow we'll get it in the back of the goal or we'll stop you from getting it into the goal. But, you know, so you hope that by the time they get to the varsity level, they're reasonably skilled, they can catch and throw. And then, you know, you can work on developing them into the system that works. One huge difference between high school and college that I think you you clearly understand is that college, you can always recruit a certain kid that fits the style that you want to play, you know. In high school, you can't do that. You got to take what you get, you know. You, you know, you hope that you get a certain kid coming into your program. I always, we always, to this day, love, love left-handers you know they're an invaluable part of the game if you ask me you just have to have them uh they're great in the goal they're great on defense but you know offensively it's great to have two three four lefties on your team because it gives you the ability i think to attack the goal you know from both sides but anyhow the the idea that you know we could put kids in a certain system that doesn't work you know you have to put the system in for the kids that you had and that's one big difference I think between college and high school lacrosse you know you gotta you gotta do what you you know the talent base that you have you know you gotta coach to that so you know I think it's it's something that changed all the time what uh how much uh, man did you play versus how much zone over the course of years 
Uh, I would say, you know, that's another, you know, great question, I think. Uh, I'd say, you know, we were one team that we would absolutely play a lot of zone defense. Not necessarily, you know, 48 minutes of zone defense, but we always had the ability to, to, to put the zone in um, and to show teams, you know, coming out of timeouts with a minute left in a quarter. You know, team, you know, the, the guy at the other end designing his play against the man, and we would come out and play some zone. Um, we, would, uh, we would clearly mix it up as much as we could. Um, and I think that that's something that a lot of teams don't take as much advantage of as they could. So we mixed it a lot. Uh, we played a lot of zones, and we played a lot of different zones over time. Um, and I think the one thing I guess Coach Tierney really forced everybody to do with his unique slide packages and the way he developed it is, I mean, his man-to-man defense was just, you know, it was really zone defense if, if, if you really looked at it, don't you think? Absolutely. I mean, just packing it in and they would be in a little box or a little three in a row was they were pushing out at X. But I remember, you know, watching their film ad nauseum in the early 90s as everybody was trying to figure out, you know, how to how to score goals on that vaunted uh, Princeton defense. Yeah. So I think good man-to-mans have a lot of zone and I think good zones have a lot of man-to-man, you know, the 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 the. the the difference between the two isn't as great as a lot of people make them out to be. I, I, that's the way I think, you know, uh, you know, the one subtle difference with some zones is, are you going to pressure the ball behind the goal? Uh, are you going to, you know, put as much pressure on the ball that you might be inclined to do when you're playing man, but there's, there's little doubt that the two of them are so kind of interchangeable. It's crazy. Did you ever play against Joe Cuzo's Ward Melville backer zones with pressure? Yes, we did actually. We 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 played uh, we played uh, Ward Melville. Uh, I don't know, maybe just once. We played them actually at Johns Hopkins in 1983 or or 84. Um, we played them at Johns Hopkins before a Hopkins game, and that was back when Ward Melville was. You know, Chris Walker was playing defense, and um, what what's one of those great attackmen that Eddie I went to Cornell. Timmy Goldstein. Yeah, Gold, yeah, Timmy Goldstein, Cornell guy was on the team. And we actually, uh, we lost 11 to 9, but it was a great game. Um, and then I coached with Joe on a couple, uh, I coached with Joe in the, uh, on a USA under 19 team. Um, and that zone always freaked everybody out. <laughs> yeah. Just, that would, that I thing mean, seems to be like impossible to duplicate. What about, did you ever play, um, did you ever play any West Jenny teams against Coach Masser? No, we we never did. You know, one issue, you know, because of the way the 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 league down here works, and when we start, you know, we're we're in full league play by you know typically by you know March twenty fifth, you know, and by then they're just getting out, and so it was always tough for us to travel. You know, once our league game started, or for them to travel down because they might come down early to play us and they weren't ready to play, you know, as, as ready as they would be, let's say by the middle of April, you know, it just, it just never worked out. When you think about some of the people, you know, you referenced this earlier, you know, you think about, I always like to ask coaches how they uh, quote sharpen their saw, you know, how do they get better? And you mentioned, you, you know, obviously John Brown store people came in and talked to lacrosse with you every day. 
I'm going to rattle off names of people and uh, you rattle off, you know, something that you took from them. So we'll start with uh, Dave Cottle. Uh, brilliant tactician, just brilliant. You know, just the X's and O's part of the game. Uh, you know, uh, I would say Dave's, you know, is certainly as good as anybody I ever talked to and terrific on offense and especially extra man offense. Um, really impressive. How about Tony Seaman? Uh, Tony, you know, early in, 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 in Tony's coaching career, I think he played a fair amount of zone defense yeah, he did. that he, you know, he imparted and, and, you know, kind of gave to me, you know, Hey, Tony, can we sit down and talk about it? And, you know, he, he, he gave me, um, he gave us some, uh, a lot of good stuff. and was always incredibly gracious as, as all these guys are incredibly gracious with his time. Um, Bill Tierney. Tierney, uh, same, you know, early, you know, you were talking about, I guess, I don't know when he first sort of evolved his defensive philosophy that, you know, essentially everybody is copied, you know, and everybody's tweaking now, but, most teams are playing, you know, Bill Tierney defense, I think, or some yeah. version thereof. Yeah. Um, he revolutionized thing, Huh? He revolutionized defense. Yeah, no question. And, you know, it's the same thing. Just, uh, uh, just amazing. And so gracious and kind and, and considerate about it all. Um, he was – just wonderful and he still is you know he he he'd still spend some time with you right now as with tony and as with dave oh yeah no doubt I, I i used to call those guys on the phone all the time as a young coach and they always took my call and were always willing to willing and happy to share um how about carl rook um not too much uh of course talking to carl you'd have to translate everything you know <laughs> he, he was so funny and so entertaining he was. i think the one the one thing that you would always get from Carl is um, I, I think maybe not so much X's and O's, but, but dealing with kids, you know, and, and motivating kids. Uh, he, he was terrific at it uh, and had a heart of gold. You know what he did when he was uh, at Towson? You know what one of his jobs was? What? He, he taught sign language. <laughs> um, no way. That was one of, that was one of his expertises. I think it had something to do. I think he had a child that had a hearing issue, and that might have been how he developed it. But, you know, so there's a guy who had, you know, the ability to have a lot of empathy. Amazing. How about big man, Coach Adele? Uh, you know, from Dick, it, it, the one thing you could always get from Dick was what an incredible memory he had. He could remember, you know, some play when he was coaching at high school at Calvert Hall in the second quarter of some game in the middle of April. So his recall was wonderful. And his recall of things that you did and kids that you coached was wonderful. And he could always relate that to you. You know, if you called him up and asked him a question, he'd always be able to say, hey, remember that time Jamie Monroe was playing for, you know, Moses Brown and, you know, he, 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 threw the ball down to that attackman and he just cut into the middle and then he stepped down to the ball and, you know, he stuck that, you know, he, he'd remember stuff like that. Like there was nobody's business. And of course, you know, nobody taught kids how to play the game tougher than Dick Adele did. Oh man. 
I used to hear so many big man stories when Hilgi was my assistant. Uh, how about Zim, Coach Zimmerman? Uh, you know, one thing here in Baltimore that you knew, you know, and that goes back to, you know, Henry Ciccaroni inviting me, you know, for a little breakfast meeting because he didn't want me to screw it up coaching his son. Um, actually, John, I apologize. I, I mistook. John wasn't his oldest son. Henry and Brent are older than John, but yeah. John was the first kid that I was a head coach for. So that's, yeah. I think, why Henry, you know, asked me to uh, join him for breakfast. But the one thing about Hopkins, Hopkins revolutionized, I think, the game in the X's and O's component. You know, they were the, probably the first program, you know, that really broke the game down and taught the game in a certain way. And most Hopkins people, you know, would would just knew kind of more about the X's and O's of the game. And whenever you had a person from Hopkins, you know, they were so buttoned down with the way they, the, you know, they taught the game, you know, and from Chick to Zim, I don't know, experts in the game of lacrosse and experts yeah. in teaching the game of lacrosse. Yeah. Um, and Zim, you know, I had the fortune in, uh, to coach Zim's uh, son, uh, when he was in high school. And so Zim was another one of those guys that, you know, in a heartbeat, he'd do anything for you and, about, you know, help you in any way he could. How about uh, Jake Reed? Well, you know, I coached against, I I know coached against Jake for but, but so many years. But you guys a lot of lacrosse with that guy. Oh, uh, yeah. Jake, Jake, uh, Jake's been around as much lacrosse as anybody, honestly. If you think about his career, you know, coaching in college, coaching in high school, you know, coaching, you know, nonstop all the time. Um, you know, Jake, we always got along, but, you know, we had, uh, I guess, a friendly rivalry when he was the head coach of McDonough. But, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, when, when, when he left McDonough uh, and Travis left McDonough and came to Boys Latin, you know, I think our relationship changed. Instead of being competitors, we were kind of rooting for each other because I was, you know, I, I had the fortune of coaching his son for a couple years. Um, and Jake, Jake, he he talked lacrosse, you know, till the cows come in. Oh, no doubt. I uh, I worked with Jake. We we started a a company uh, where 3D lacrosse um, had merged with uh, Blue Chip, and we had these camps. And I would spend uh, four five weekends um, a year for about four or five years with Jake and we would just talk lacrosse. We, we, we would get a little, we would room together in like a little suite and we'd literally just talk lacrosse nonstop. And he's one of the few guys out there, you know, and you're probably one of them too, that, you know, like to talk about lacrosse nonstop. And uh, everybody usually makes fun of me about it, but Jake never did. It was always fun to talk. All right. Last guy, Dave Yurick. Um, I didn't get to know Dave real well, you know, when he was up at Hobart, you know, I, I played against, uh, I guess, one of his Hobart teams, I think by 72, which when I was a junior in college, Dave was now the coach and we played against him in 72. And at that time it wasn't division three. It was considered, you know, the small college finals. Um, and then when he, you know, morphed down to Georgetown, I really didn't get to know him until my son went to school there. And, um, you know, my son played for Dave for four years. And um, Dave, uh, honestly, I don't know any other way to describe one of the great human beings of all time. Um, and 
one guy that the kids would rally around Dave Yurick like there was nobody's business. I, I don't know, you know, when he was at Hobart for all those years, they were so good and dominant. Uh, and I don't want to take anything away from his coaching ability, but he just he beat people up physically. Uh, he just had better athletes at Hobart. And as you know, I think that that's very hard to do at the collegiate level. Um, you know, they're just they're, they're kids that are bigger, faster, stronger. And so Dave, Dave's probably brilliance was in, in how he treated kids and his relationship with the kids he coached. Uh, I'd say I'd be shocked if there was a kid that Dave Yurick coached that wouldn't say that they loved the guy. Yeah, it's pretty co pretty big common denominator with a lot of the guys that we just mentioned, actually. Um, well, Strives, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, coming on this podcast and sharing your wisdom, sharing some awesome memories, talking lacrosse. Um, and uh, I will uh, look forward to seeing you this, this spring at some Georgetown games. Yeah, uh, listen, I, let me just apologize a little bit you were just talking about how you and jake would just sit there and talk lacrosse and you know you, i call it being a junkie you know <laughs> i get in these conversations uh, we have this new kid that started working at boys latin this week who 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 walked tried to walk on at notre dame he's a lacrosse kid and you know i grabbed him two days ago and we we're just sitting talking lacrosse and so i get in these conversations i'll just start rambling on because you know, it's, uh, it, it's, you know, it's in your blood, I guess. It's, uh, it's the greatest game going. It is, man. Well, I agree, and I look forward to talking lacrosse with you again, Shrives. Uh, thanks again, and uh, have an awesome weekend. All right. Thanks, Jamie. I really appreciate it. Same right. to you. Yeah, take care. Bye. See you. The Phil Lacrosse Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Lacrosse Academy. This 10-week online program is designed to teach cutting-edge lacrosse skills and IQ. Athletes will learn dozens of new techniques, creative drills, X's and O's, and most importantly, how to integrate it all into their game. To learn more or start getting better today, go to www.jm3sports.com forward slash academy.